Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Dabelis. Last week, European leaders focused on EU enlargement from the Western Balkans to Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. While the EU wants closer ties with these countries, it has also made it clear that it expects reforms, particularly when it comes to issues related to the rule of law and justice. Dimitar Bechev, a research fellow at Carnegie Europe, where he focuses on Central, Eastern, and Southeastern Europe, and a lecturer at Oxford's School of Global and Area Studies, joins me to look at these latest developments and break down why he believes there are no quick fixes for EU enlargement. Dimitar, great having you back on The Greek Current. Thanks for having me. Dimitar, is EU enlargement becoming a fashionable topic again in European capitals? I think it has become a fashionable topic, and you could see it almost in the same vein last year. Last December, and that's 2022, there was the momentous decision to make Ukraine and Moldova candidate countries, and also Bosnia. And there was a clear signal that, as far as EU was concerned, enlargement was being rejected and uh, reinvigorated. So yeah, I mean, it dominates the headlines. It's now fashionable after a period where it was off the agenda. What has led to this shift, Dimitar? I think the war in Ukraine has been a wake-up call for Europeans that they have to take enlargement seriously because historical experience shows that this is the most robust geopolitical tool they have at their disposal. And after all, it was enlargement in its earlier iteration that actually triggered the Ukraine crisis in 2013, for those of us who remember those early days. And by the same token, the EU needs to put enlargement back on the agenda if it wants to have real influence beyond its borders. I want to hone in on the Western Balkans first. You know, the EU has called for more reforms from Balkan leaders, particularly on rule of law issues. As the EU looks to expand into the Balkans, is it all the more important that EU officials press Balkan leaders to not only talk the talk of Europe, but also walk the walk, to use the words you wrote in your latest piece? Well, absolutely, yeah. And we have some positive examples. Uh, Remember when Croatia was joining, they were bold enough to launch anti-corruption investigations that led to the imprisonment of a former prime minister, he was another. But to be honest, it works both ways because for the EU, that was a success story. For Western Balkan leaders, that was a precedent, a worrying one, that they could end up in the same position. So the fact that you at some point became less keen to enlarge was not necessarily something they weren't happy about because also enlargement, if done properly with all the reforms, could jeopardize the existing set of relations in domestic polities in the region. In the meantime, Dimitar, populations and countries on the EU membership wait list, particularly in the Balkans, have grown cynical despite high levels of support for EU membership. Should this be a concern in Brussels? I think it should because for the reasons that we discussed in the previous question, if you need to have reform worthy of its name, you need local buy-in. You need part of the citizenry who invested in the reform, who want to proactively change because the record thus far... Also, in Central Europe, shows that unless there is impetus from within countries, those reforms tend to be very short-lived. If you achieve membership, but you haven't done the work substantively, you can always turn around and then go back to business as usual. And corruption takes over, and you have also the EU money that makes things worse. What tools does the EU have at its disposal, aside from you know accelerating the EU membership process, to press for these reforms? We have considerable financial clouds. Now it's put forward another 1 billion 
in funding for the Western Balkans on top of all other funds that have been made available. So I think that this, this is going to be really important going forward, not least because enlargement this membership is not in the cards imminently for many of those countries. So additional funding will be even more important as an economic tool to strengthen integration. But it has to come with strict monitoring and strings attached. Otherwise, again, we're running into the same problem of funding corruption in the region. When we talk about EU membership or enlargement for the Western Balkans, I think the two countries that are in the lead right now to accelerate this process are Albania and North Macedonia. But last week, EU leaders also mentioned Bosnia and Herzegovina. What should Bosnians expect out of this process? Well, Bosnia has been the beneficiary because uh, as far as the European Commission was concerned, they were not meeting the criteria and they're still falling short of the diluted conditionality. But the political momentum generated by Ukraine and Moldova has basically helped Bosnia jump a few rungs on the ladder, as it were. But still, I mean, Bosnia is not start negotiation. It has to do some homework. But again, in, in Bosnia, we've been running in circles, putting forward some conditions, then backtracking a bit, so then removing conditions. So I don't think the EU policy is that much credible, unfortunately, in this particular context. Moving away from the Balkans, you know, the EU also extended its hand, as we mentioned, to Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. What will this mean when we look at EU-Russia relations, especially as they play out over Eastern Europe? Because you've written about this EU-Russia contest in the region in the past. Well, Russia is on the back foot because if you do the numbers, you see trade being reoriented towards the West. The West is also where people from the region are finding employment. And now in the context of Ukraine, uh, the war, the West has assumed a more robust security role in helping Ukraine deflect and resist the, the aggression. So the vector is pointing westwards, not towards the east. And that's a big shift because 10, 15 years ago, you'd see those countries as in between, connected both to the EU, but also to Russia, the economy, their society, and so on and so forth. But this doesn't mean that Russia is out of the game. Obviously, it has lots of levers to use, uh, not least military force and also connection to people at high places. George would be a good example where the population is very much pro-EU, but the government has all kinds of dealings with Moscow. So the game is not over and there will be other frictions and tussles. I think also Armenia will be interesting going forward since they've grown disillusioned with the Russian Security Alliance, Security Guarantee, and they will be looking at strengthening ties in politics, but also security and economics with the West and with the EU in particular. Dimitar, you've argued that while enlargement remains the most powerful foreign policy tool at the EU's disposal, it's likely to remain dysfunctional. What should this tell us about the road ahead? Well, it won't be easy. Uh, I don't think there's any low-hanging fruit for enlargement. Even in the Western Balkans, I mean, on the one hand, it's much more of a fertile soil for the EU to do what it does because there is no war. Despite the dispute around Kosovo, there is not much uncertainty about where a country ends and starts, which is the case in, in Ukraine with annexations. And also was the case historically in Cyprus, where only part of the island exceeded, but not the north. In the Western Balkans, you don't have those territorial and security challenges. But you have lots of factors that are blunting EU's influence. And I think that will remain the case because you cannot conceive of a scenario where actually government gets clean, 
politics becomes much more transparent and there is real pressure from below for a different type of politics. I mean, just yesterday we had elections in Serbia, which have largely consolidated the status quo with President Vucic being in charge after 11 years. And as the harbinger of what's to come. So he will be fighting a upward battle. But I think on a more optimistic note, if everything goes right, you might have one or two countries joining by the end of the decade or maybe early in the next decade. And Montenegro might have a chance just because of its size and its trajectory this far. But again, even post-membership, what we learn from other cases is that the battle for the rule of law is not won on the day of you become a member state. And it continues and sometimes there will be setbacks. And the EU has to think through about the means it has at its disposal to discipline predatory elites after gaining accession. And I think that's a wink to certain leaders within the EU, primarily Viktor Orban in Hungary. But given the challenges posed by leaders like Orban or you know the potential premiership of Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands, do we also need to take a look within the EU when we talk about enlargement and you know see is this going to be a fashionable topic for much longer despite you know the current appetite for expansion? Maybe you're right. It might wither as far as discussions are concerned. Because the X number of other issues to crowd the agenda of EU leaders. And going forward, you can conceive of a moment where actually the last one is not top of the agenda as it is now. But I think there is a dynamic, underlying dynamic, that pulls those countries closer and closer to the EU, even without a political process where their societies, economies, and what have you, gravitates towards the EU market. But also, we have should be honest about forces within the EU undermining the credibility of enlargement. If individual member states are hijacking the process and putting forward their own agendas, for example, we see it very clearly now in the disputes between Ukraine and its neighbours when it comes to transport arrangements and permits for or lorry drivers, something as mundane, uh, and the blockages at the border, that might also translate into all kinds of wrangling around negotiation chapters. So the process will probably meet opposition inside the EU and will be hijacked by member states and by their leadership for short-term gains and all kinds of other national priorities. Dimitar, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks for joining. It's a pleasure. In other news, Greece approved its 2024 budget on Sunday, forecasting a rise in economic growth to 2.9% from 2.4% this year as a result of robust tourist revenues and EU funds helping investment. Athens will target a primary budget surplus, which excludes debt servicing costs of 2.1% of GDP next year, up from a surplus of 1.1% this year. Greece still needs to maintain primary budget surpluses to make sure its debt is sustainable. Additionally, Greece's GDP adjusted for inflation was predicted to top 200 billion euros for the first time since 2010. About 1.4 billion euros in spending is earmarked to boost income, including pay rises for civil servants. Finally, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged his Turkish counterpart Hakan Fidan to conclude the ratification process for Sweden's pending membership in NATO as soon as possible. As contact between Ankara and Washington intensifies amid the Israel-Hamas war, the two also discussed the need to increase the speed and scale of humanitarian assistance to Gaza, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said. The Biden administration has in recent months upped the pressure on Ankara to speed up Sweden's NATO ratification. Aside from Sweden's NATO bid, Fidan and Blinken also reportedly discussed Ankara's request to purchase F-16 fighter jets from the United States. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.